a joy. So if I haven't had a chance to connect with you, I hope I get to after service today and those who are, I've known for a while, I'm looking forward to renewing fellowship with you as well. Thrilled to have my wife with me today. This is my wife, mother of my four children and grandmother to my three grandchildren. That's right. So... Um, when you get married young, like at age 20, like we did, then, you know, you, when you're only 39 our age, you already have grandchildren. So. About three months ago, for the first time in my life, I heard God's voice. Now, I have heard, had the leading of God many times. I've sensed God's leading, telling me to go here to do that. Uh, one time I lost my keys and I was had to be at work at a certain time, and I was just in a pan. Anyone ever been there? <laughs> I'm very anal about my keys now. They always go the same place because of this experience. And uh, I, I suddenly had a moment of clarity, you know, like, like alcoholics call before they go into Alcoholics Anonymous, a moment of clarity. And it dawned on me that God knew where my keys were. Was big revelation. So I got down on my knees in the middle of the floor, and I talk to God. I said, God, you know where these keys are, and I know you know where they are, and I know that you can tell me where they are. Would you please show me where my keys are? And it just came to me, go check the curtains. And so I got up off my knees, and when I picked up the curtain, I heard a jingle, and in the hem of the curtain, my daughter, who was just a little girl at the time, had gotten a hold of my keys, and it put them in the hem of the curtain. Now, you know, how, how would I have known that? So that's the leading of the Lord. But I heard God's voice for the first time a few months ago. And um, I suppose you'd like to know what he said. Yeah. All right, we'll stick around to the end of the service. <laughs> we'll, we'll come back to that. All right. Well, I want to tell you a story before we dig into the, the word today. And it's going to be, by the way, out of Ma Matthew 13. We're going to talk about parables and what they are and why Jesus used this strange form of communication in talking to his followers. And so let me give you an example of what a parable was like because they came to Jesus on several occasions and said, Lord, we don't get it. We don't understand these stories. Why, why are you talking to us like this? So here, here's an example. Um, there was a, a man named Mr. Taylor, Senor Taylor, and he had a guy who worked for him named Ernesto. And Senor Taylor had a beautiful veranda, and he was away from home, and Ernesto was taking care of the estate for him. So Ernesto calls him, and he answers the phone. He's quite surprised because Ernesto almost never calls. said, Ernesto, what's, what's going on? Why are you calling? He said, oh, Senor Taylor, I have bad news. It's que your favorite parrot, Paco, he died. He's, Mr. Taylor said, what? what? What in the world happened to Paco? I love that parrot. He said, oh, senor, it's very sad. It's que he ate the bad meat. He, senor Taylor said, what, bad meat? What are you talking about? We don't even feed him meat. He says, this is what I'm trying to tell you, senor. Es que your favorite horse, the Arabian stallion, he died. He said, what? My Arabian stallion died. That, that horse is worth almost a million dollars. I love that horse. What in the world happened to my horse? He said, well, it's good. he was pulling the cart with the barrels of, of, of water. It thumped over, and the horse, he broke his neck. He said, oh, my God, what in the world was he doing hooked up to a, to a cart? And, and why was he carrying water? Ernesto said, it's what I'm trying to tell you, senor. There was a fire. 
There was a fire. Mr. Taylor said, a fire? you got to be kidding me. What, what burned down on the veranda? He said, your house, senor. Your house, he burned down. Mr. Taylor said, what? My, my, the veranda is gone? You've got you've to be kidding me. What in the world happened to the house? He said, well, the candle, let's get the candle, it fell over. He said, well, why were we burning candles at the house? We never burn candles. It's what I'm trying to tell you, senor. Your wife, she died. <laughs> he said, what? My wife is dead? You've got to be kidding me. What in the world happened? And why didn't you just tell me this? He said, what I'm trying to tell you? <clears throat> she locked herself out of the house, and she climbed through the window. I think she was a thief. I take your four iron, and I hit her in the head. And she's dead. He said, Ernesto, if you hurt that four iron, there's going to be big trouble, okay? Now, you notice how that fell flat? That's how the parables went. The guys were listening. They're going, okay, there's, there's a sower, and he went out to sow seed, and he did this, and he did that. So they're tracking with Jesus, and at the end they go, okay. <laughs> Did you get what he said? All right. What, what, what's the point of the story? And that's what we're going to dig in today. So let's look at the land of the Bible. In this first slide, you're looking at ancient Capernaum. How many of you have been there? Okay, this was the dual headquarters of Jesus' ministry when he was in the Galilee. So on one side of the Jordan River, there was Capernaum. On the other side is Bethsaida. One is ruled by Herod Antipas. The other is ruled by Herod Philip. So Jesus consciously, sentiently, jumps political boundaries 22 different times in his ministry. So this is the headquarters for his ministry, and these are the ruins of first century houses, very similar to what we are excavating. And that's the synagogue. Okay, the, see, the, the black foundation is the foundation of the synagogue from the days of Jesus. And just on the other side <clears throat> is the famous house church, or Domus Ecclesia, that has several churches over these 20 centuries built on top of it, the house of St. Peter. And so we have a number of miracles that happen in this, this village that are recorded in Scripture, no telling how many more that are, are not recorded in Scripture. But this is what it looks like at ancient Capernaum, which is on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now let's look at the harbor, <clears throat> and you can see what this looked like. This is a rendering by Lane Rittmeyer, who's a member of my dig staff, the world's leading expert on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And so if you want to see what things really looked like in Bible times, you can go to Rittmeyer Designs and, and actually see it. This is Capernaum, and what it would have looked like, this was the headquarters of Jesus' ministry, and it's right on the Sea of Galilee, would have had a few hundred people there. And think about the amazing stories that take place there. For example, <clears throat> There is Jesus is preaching inside Peter's house, and the crowd is thronging. Nobody else can even get in. So what do these guys do to get their friend to Jesus? They break through the roof. Now, in, in Luke's gospel, the Greek word is karamas. They break through the karamas, which means a ceramic roof. So it's not some cheapo dirt roof. I mean, they tore up this guy's ceramic roof. And they break through it and they lower their friend to Jesus. And so this is the place where all of this is occurring. And Jesus, in the story we're going to read today out of Matthew 13, he teaches four parables from a boat. He leaves one of these houses and then he goes and he sits by the, the lake. 
he teaches four parables. Then he returns to the house. He explains a parable privately to the disciples. And then he tells them two more parables before moving on to Nazareth. So what's the deal with all of these parables? Well, I usually lead two or three tours a year in Israel. And last year, as you'll see in the next photo, I had the opportunity of uh, taking my pastor with me. And this was a photo that he snapped of the shore at the Sea of Galilee. And I thought it really captured it well because the water level was very low. Now, we've had very heavy rains. I was there over the winter. The, the, the Sea of Galilee is higher than it's been in a century right now. And so this is good, of course, for the country, plus heavy snows on Mount Hermon this year. So as they begin to melt now in March and April, you'll get really, really great water flow through the Jordan River, which will then raise the level of the Dead Sea. But last year, you could see things <clears throat> that you couldn't normally see, like the foundations of the ancient harbor and what the shoreline looked like in the days of Jesus. About 25, 26 years ago, there were brothers from this village who were walking along the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and they saw something stick out of the water when it was low like this, and when they investigated, they could see that they were the ruins of an ancient boat sticking up. So they went and notified archaeologists who came, in, and a, a tremendous effort then came into play to save this ancient boat. Texas A&M University, who, by the way, has a nautical archaeology program. They were part of the consortium. But a member of my team, Orna Cohen, was the one who led this effort to save the boat that is now affectionately known as the Jesus boat or the Galilee boat, a first century fishing boat from the time of Jesus. And you can see in the next slide exactly what that boat looked like. And it's in a museum now at Gennesar. So when you go to the Sea of Galilee, before you take a boat ride, you can go and stop by the museum and see this. And I love this boat, and it cost a fortune to restore it. But guess how many people would fit into this boat? Thirteen. Okay? And uh, it, it was in use for many, many years. It's been patched over and over <clears throat> because there are a dozen different types of wood, sycamore wood and shittim wood and different types of wood that it's patched with over the years before it finally was scuttled or perhaps during the, uh, during the Great Revolt it was sunk at that time. But it was salvaged and it's a remnant from the past that reminds us of the authenticity of the stories that we read about in the Bible. And so as we move into the scripture this morning, I wanna, want you to think for a moment about what is a parable? And why didn't Jesus just tell them what to do? I mean, if you read the Quran, it's very simple, okay? It just tells you, it's like stream of consciousness. It's like reading William Faulkner or something like that. It's telling you exactly what to do. But that's not what we get in the Bible. What we get in the Bible is narrative. And we get stories, and from those stories, God speaks to us about what we're supposed to do. And that's what a parable really is. It's a type of genre that's intended to draw out a response. Because if I told you right now, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not bear false witness, you would just yawn and go, ah, oh, yeah, I mean... We heard that all before. We already know that. Tell us something I don't know. So what Jesus would do is he would tell them stories. There was a man who was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among thieves. He got robbed. He was beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. All right. Now I've got your attention. All right, There is a story that ultimately is going to have a point. Jesus' native language was Aramaic. And so when we tell you guys that well, the New Testament was written in Greek, 
It's kind of true. We're sort of kind of telling you the truth, but not completely because it wasn't thought in Greek. It wasn't spoken in Greek. It was thought in Aramaic and spoken in Aramaic and then translated into Greek because Greek was the dominant language of the Mediterranean world. Aramaic was a dialect spoken by only a few people. So if you have a message intended to go to the whole world, you're going to put it in a dominant language. So for example, today, English would be the dominant language of the world. So you would certainly want to have it in English so that you could reach a much greater audience. And when he's thinking in Aramaic, you can see what the problem would be. Because if you're translating from one language to another and you're using metaphors, figures of speech, you see the potential for losing the meaning in translation. Now, um, next week I'm going to be speaking at a conference down in, in Mexico, in southern Mexico, and I'm fluent in Spanish. You know how I knew that I was fluent in Spanish? When I understood the jokes, the nuances, the... The plays on words and the nuances, that's the key that then can be lost from what Jesus taught to us here 2,000 years later. So what we want to do is help you build a bridge back to the time of Jesus. The word for, for parable in Aramaic is metal, but in Greek it's parabole, and it can mean a variety of things. It can mean like a, a, a puzzle, a riddle an allegory, uh, a, a figure of speech of some kind. So it has a broad range of meanings, and it's very much like a joke. And so since my last joke fell flat, I'm going to try again. All right. You can hold up scores after this, all right? This is an Aggie joke. <clears throat> so this is during the French Revolution, and the French have invented this thing called the guillotine and the guillotine chops off people's heads, all right? So they have three guys that they're going to execute. There's an Englishman, a Frenchman, and an Aggie. Yes, the Raggies back in the French Revolution. And so they have them all three up next to the guillotine. First, they strap in the Englishman. They ask him if he has any last words, and he says, long live the queen. They pull the rope, the blade comes down, and it just bounces right at his neck, and it stops, and the crowd yells, it's a miracle. Free him, free him, let him go. So they turn the Englishman loose. Next, they get the Frenchman. They strap him into the guillotine. They ask him if he has any last words. He says, Viva la France. Well, they pull the rope. The blade comes down and bounces right at his neck. The crowd yells, Libertad, Libertad, let him go. So they set the Frenchman free. Next, they get the Aggie. They strap him into the guillotine. They ask him if he has any last words. He says, I believe I see your problem. You have a knot right up here at the top. <clears throat> if you just untie that knot, this thing would work great. Okay. So a parable is very much like a joke, all right? It's it, the, the, the meaning comes to you with time. Now, if you just came here from another country and you didn't know what an Aggie was, you might kind of laugh along with us, but you wouldn't really get the full meaning of the joke, would you? And that's sometimes our challenge when we're dealing with Scripture. So my question for you <clears throat> is how do we, as 21st century disciples and followers of Jesus of Nazareth, how do we capture the Messiah's message? How do we internalize it, and then how do we externalize it so that then others 
can bring it into their lives. And the first thing we have to do is go then and there. And so no matter what you know about the Bible and the world of the Bible, the rest of your life, you should be learning more. You start where you are right now, you go then and there, and then you bring it here and now. Then and there, here and now. What did the original writer or speaker intend under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to communicate to the original hearer? We take the discipline of going through those steps. What did it mean to them then and there? So that then, by the Holy Spirit, I can apply it to myself here and now. And I've learned this, that the, the number one single most important thing you can do to understand the Bible is not to go to seminary, even though I'm provost at a seminary and a huge believer in that. It's to read the Bible. Turn to someone next to you and say, he's talking about you. Yeah. Read the Bible. And then reread it and reread it and reread it. We read it over and over until it sinks into our minds and into our spirits. And as we do, the Word of God begins to change us because Romans 10 tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And as we internalize it, then the Spirit begins to speak to us. When we're taking a shower, when we're waking up during the night for whatever reason, it's that Word that is moving in our lives rather than a lot of the other voices <clears throat> that are not productive. In fact, there was a study done recently. Uh, the Center for Bible Engagement studied 40,000 people. So this is a massive study done over many years. People of all different ages, socioeconomic levels, races, um, creeds, and so forth. And they took all these people who were Bible readers and they gauged the impact of their Bible reading. And I want you to listen statistically to what they found from this survey. People who were reading the Bible at least every other day. So pretty minimal standard here. Look at the impact. Number one, loneliness decreased by 30%. Anger issues decreased by 32%. Bitterness in relationships decreased by 40%. Alcoholism decreased by 57%. Engaging with pornography decreased by 61%. Feeling spiritually stagnant decreased by 60%. Sharing their faith increased by 200%. Discipling others increased by 230%. <clears throat> What's the secret sauce? It's called reading the Bible. I had a, a guy who I was trying to help a few years ago. He was the son of a friend of mine and somebody I, I cared about going through a hard time. So I was meeting with him once a week and we would talk through, I would try to listen and then we were talking through some of the issues that he was having. <clears throat> you know, the, the key to biblical counseling is for you to come into agreement with the word of God. So when I'm counseling someone, I'm gonna tell you what God says. And I have noticed this over low these, I've been in 40 years in ministry, okay? And so I've listened to a, nothing's gonna surprise, you're not gonna tell me anything that's gonna surprise me, all right? And I noticed this, that the person getting counseled, the counselee, wants me to get into agreement with his or her problem. They want me to get into an agreement with how bad the situation is, with how awful the husband or the wife is, or how desperate the situation is. So you listen to all that to be empathetic, but then there's a redirection. Now let me tell you what God's word says. And 
we have to make a choice. Are we going to come into agreement with our circumstances or are we going to come into agreement with God's word? And then there's a battle of the wills that takes place between the counselor and the counselee. This is what biblical counseling is. Until ultimately that person submits his or her will and says, I choose to believe God's word over my circumstances and my feelings. That's what the word of God does. It transforms. So let's dig into the parable of the sower. Matthew chapter 13, Mark chapter 4, Luke chapter 8. All three synoptic gospels tell us this amazing story of the parable of the sower. So what you've got today is a city boy telling you a story about agrarian pastoral living. But since I've spent a good part of my life in Israel, maybe I'll, maybe I'll be able to understand the background and communicate it effectively. And, and I want to take Matthew's version, which comes uh, in Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. And we have this in the NIV. So that same day, Jesus went out of the house. Now, we don't know which house, but one of those houses that we saw <clears throat> in, that, in that diagram right on the shore. <clears throat> and he sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got in a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Have you ever read that story and thought he was just by himself out by the side of the lake? Where did all these people come from? No, it's because he's at Capernaum. And so there's a village right there next to him. So he goes and he sits on the dock there. And when I was a kid, I used to live about 50 feet from the water right on the dock. So I can picture this. So he goes and he sits on the dock. And then all these people from Capernaum begin to throng around him. So what does he do? He steps into a boat. And that boat becomes his pulpit. He's on the water. They're all crowded around the shore, sitting on top of those, those roofs and on the, the porches and the stairwells trying to hear the teaching of Jesus. So he begins by telling them a, a parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seeds, some fell along the path. Now, the farmer is not intentionally intending to sow it on the path. That wouldn't be a very smart farmer. You know, just out of the bottom of the bag, there's seed that's falling along the way, and it ends up on that pathway. Now, this is important because all of us our seed somewhere in this parable, and all of us are soil somewhere in the parable. So some ends up on this, this path, and the birds came and ate it up. Verse 5, some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seeds fell on good soil, where it produced a good crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let him hear. That's a metaphorical way of saying everybody has ears, so let everybody hearken to the meaning. But it wasn't easy. The disciples came to Jesus and they said, we don't get it. You know, I mean, they're with him all the time. So if you don't get it, then have some mercy on yourself because they were with him all the time too and, and they didn't get it. So they said, Lord, what's, what's the meaning of the parable? And in verse 18, he begins to explain it to them. By the way, you guys really need to get a new screen. This little screen, wimpy screen is not, is not gonna cut it. <clears throat> all right, not coming back here and preaching again till you get a better screen. <clears throat> verse 18 listen to what the parable of the sower means 
When anyone hears the message about the kingdom, and these, these parables, by the way, it's a series of what we would call kingdom parables. So when anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand that the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed that was sown along the path. Now you may think, that's me. <laughs> or someone I know, they were seed, they, they were accidentally dropped on the path, the evil one, the bird came and, and ate them, and now it's, it's over. No, you're going to see it's not over. God gets the final word. Verse 20, the seed that was falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. You know, I've noticed this over the years, that God calls me to love. I'm not a judge. There are, it's a good thing because I'm not a very good one. There, in the natural, I've seen people that I'm sure they're going to make it. They got everything going their way. They're on the right track. And they don't. And there are other people who are all messed up and they're, they get straight in, into sin, they, they, the cares of this world, and they're just a disaster. But in the end, they trust God and they end up making it. So God is the one who's the Lord of the harvest. He calls us to sow seed. All right, verse 22, the seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth Two things, worries and deceitfulness of wealth, choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. And all of us are in there somewhere. So where are we in this parable? Of the kingdom. Well, first of all, Jesus talks about seed that falls along the path that gets eaten by the birds, and he tells us in the interpretation that these birds are demonic. This is the evil one, this is the devil, and he comes and he snatches away the word before it can take root. We've seen this before, we've seen birds come and eat seeds, and it's not that that's the end of the story. In fact, that's the beginning of a very interesting journey. Do you remember a man named Jonah who <clears throat> thought he was going to run from God? And as he was going out through the Mediterranean, they threw him overboard in this ship. And as he began to sink down, what did God send to rescue the prophet? He sent a submarine, right? <laughs> a, a huge fish came and swallowed the prophet. And he took him to the shores of Nineveh, and he vomited him out on the shores. What the French would call eau de vomite, all right? Out he goes, ejected onto the shores of Nineveh. In the same way, when God's word, the seed in this parable, is taken by the bird, that's not the end of the story. Because for some of you, you were taken by the bird at some point. And that bird flew, and then God caused that bird to need to poop. And that bird pooped you out right in the soil that you were supposed to be all along, along with some fertilizer to go with it. 
You see, it's not because you got eaten by the bird that that's the end of the story and now you're going to hell and now your life's over. Oh no, you've been eaten just like Jonah. You're going to be taken to exactly where you're supposed to be and God's going to cause the tummy of that bird to begin to ache and you're going to get pooped out exactly where God wants you to be. Well, if you want to, you can turn to someone and tell them he's talking about me now. Yeah, I know. I know what you're talking about. Some fell among the path and the birds came. Have you ever read the book of Job, chapters 1, chapter 2? When the evil one came and he wanted to do something to Job, what did he have to do? He had to get permission from God. And God said, yes, I give you permission. And then you get to the end of Job, chapter 42, for what purpose? Because in the end, God wanted to bless Job with twice as much as he had in the beginning. So if you find yourself in the belly of the bird this morning, it's not over. You may have an interesting flight when you hit the ground, but it's not over. Now, the second type of seed Jesus tells them about is seed that fell, falls on rocky places. And it, because of the, the small rocks, there's a lot of moisture among them. And so the seed quickly germinates. The, the, the little roots begin to, to spring out. And leaves begin to come up. And on the surface, you might say, wow, this is, this is going to be great. But beneath the surface, surface, there are rocks. There are issues. And when it gets hot, when the sun begins to scorch the little plant, it tries to send down its roots and there's nowhere for them to go. The plant is scorched. You might think to yourself, that's me. <laughs> I, I've got all this rock down there and, you know, I can't, my, my roots can't go down. In the name of Jesus, friends, that's what the body of Christ is here for. Is we're going to help you pull those rocks out of there. We're, we're going to help you move those stones and move those rocks and get good soil among you. So if you're here today, you've already made a good choice. You've come to church to hear the word of God. And at the end of the service today, there'll be a prayer team. There'll be somebody here who wants to pray with you and help you get some of that rock out of there. And let me tell you, it can be a process. It can take a, a long time to, to, to get all of that rock out of there. But God's not in a hurry. What he has started in you, he will be faithful to complete. Did you know that in Philippians 1.6, when we say that he who has begun a good work within you will be faithful to complete it, that's two beautiful Greek words. One is the beginning of the sacrificial process. One is the end of the sacrificial process. So what he has been faithful to start, he will also be faithful to complete. The third type of soil that Jesus tells them about is soil that falls among the thorns. And he says two things. It's choked out by the thorns, and he tells us what the thorns are. The worries of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth. So let's drill down a little bit on those. The worries of this world. Jesus said in Matthew 12, does worry add one day to your life? Can it add one dollar to your bank account? Can it add one hair to your head? Can it make you look any better than you look right now? No. And we know this, that 90, 95% of the things that we worry about never take place. And even if they did take place, the worry had nothing to do with preventing them or getting us through them. No, it's back to that counseling situation that I was talking about. It's a daily choice to say, I'm going to come into agreement with God's word. 
I want you to think about this. John chapter 17, Hebrews chapter 4, both say that Jesus is praying for you. I wonder what he's praying. I don't just mean like a universal prayer for the body of Christ. I mean for you. What is Jesus praying for you? And if you can just stop, drop and roll, okay? Just stop and hear that. What is Jesus praying for you? Come into agreement with Jesus and what he's saying and not your circumstances. Everything changes. Everything moves into the realm of the miraculous. Worry destroys lives. It wastes destinies. Decades slip through our hands for no good reason. In this parable, those are the thorns that choke out the word. Then he says the deceitfulness of wealth. The deceitfulness of wealth. Let me explain to you what the deceitfulness of wealth is. Templeton was once asked, how much is enough money? You know what his answer was? Just a little bit more. And so as good capitalists, and I consider myself in that group, as good capitalists, we have a challenge. Jesus Christ said, a man's life does not consist of the abundance of the things he possesses. The deceitfulness of wealth is the thought that when I get enough, then I'm going to be happy. If I could just get a little bit more, then I'll be happy. Then I'll tithe, then I'll sacrifice, then I'll give to missions, then I'll put God first, then I'm going to be happy. And you know what? A lifetime can pass, and in the end, even if you do ultimately get this amount of money or possession that somehow is going to make you, if I could just get season tickets to the Texans. I mean, they've got a new offensive coordinator after all. If I could just get that boat, if I could just have this level of income, I want to tell you, Paul said, I know how to be with little and I know how to be with a lot. And Janet and I have been married for how long, honey? 37-ish years. And we've, we've had a little and we've had a lot. And I wasn't any happier or less happy with a little than when I had a lot. You see, joy is a fruit of the Spirit, It has nothing to, when Paul wrote those words, he was in prison for crying out loud. Possessions and position do not give us happiness. The deceitfulness of wealth choked out the plant. Right after this parable, at the end of the chapter, there's another parable. And unfortunately, some people blend these two. It's called the parable of the wheat and the tares. And in the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus tells them, they ask him if if they should pull up the tares from among the wheat. He said, no, 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 you might accidentally pull up the wheat so let them grow together. That's not this parable. In this parable, the problem is not the tares, the problem are the thorns. And guess what you're supposed to do with thorns? You know, when thorns are first mentioned in the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the first mention of redemption in the Bible I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. You will bruise his heel, speaking of the Messiah who is to come, but he will crush your head. Golgotha, the place of the skull, the cross is driven into the skull, fulfilling Genesis 3.15. 
When Jesus was hanging on the cross, what did they place on his head? A crown of what? Thorns. Genesis 3.15. He is removing the curse while he's hanging on the cross. What are we supposed to do with thorns? In the name of Jesus, rip those things out. Rip those suckers out of the ground. If you get cut, you get cut. Hopefully you get a good pair of gloves. But you get those thorns out of there. You don't leave them there. You don't have to let the word be choked by thorns. You proactively remove those things that are choking them. In fact, the curse. See, we can, all, we can be redeemed, our name written in the book of life, but still have worries, still have deceitfulness, still being choked. If I could just get some spiritual breath, you can in the name of Jesus. Well, the good news is there's also good soil and some of the seed falls into this, these perfect little rows. Have you ever known somebody came from a perfect little family, had perfect little rows, and all the seed fell in? Well, guess what? That's probably what you're seeing on the surface. It's probably not exactly the way that it was. But some soil is really good soil, and the seed falls right where it's supposed to, to fall. And you get a 30% increase, a 60% increase, or a 100% percent increase return on investment. Did you know that God is the greatest business model person there's ever been? Follow God's economics. I can only think of one exception where he makes a very unwise decision. In Luke 15, we read a story about a shepherd who had 100 sheep and one of them was stolen. And he left the nine, he risked the 99 and he went after the one. That makes no sense at all to me. Until I was the one. And when I was the one, it made all the difference. He cares about investment, return on investment. But there's times he makes an exception to his own rule to come into rescue. God wants a return on investment, 30, 60, 100 fold. Have you ever heard of the rule of 72? It goes like this, you take the number 72 and the rate of return on your investment. So let's say you're invested in the stock market and you get an annual rate of return on average of 6%, then six goes into 72 12 times. So every 12 years, your money would double. So if you started with 1,000, 12 years later, you would have $2,000. Um, if you were getting a 12% return on your money, 12 goes into 72 six times, so every six years, your money would double, and 18 would be every four years it would double, and so forth. So in this story, the lowest rate of return is 30%. That means that about every two plus years, the investment is doubling. Spiritually, somebody's getting rich. The kingdom of God is growing. Now, I know you guys are involved in some amazing things going on in India. There's things going on in Latin America. There's things going on in, in Africa. We have a world that's on fire with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's not choose to focus on the negative. Let's choose to focus on the positive that's going on in the world around us. Now, can, can you do anything about it to determine if you're a 30-fold, 60-fold, or 100-fold? Is that all up to God, or is that all up to you? 
I'm not positive of the, of the answer of that, but I'll tell you my life experience is this, that you do, you can come into partnership with God and you can cultivate the soil and fertilize the soil and cooperate so that there is a greater return that the father gets on his investment. Now, I know Jesus talked about four types of seeds, but I want to tell you about a fifth. Many years ago, I was excavating in the country of Jordan, eight kilometers north of the Dead Sea, and I began to excavate a deposit of seeds, and this is about three meters below the surface, so 10 feet or so beneath the surface. Seeds I'd never seen before, I didn't recognize them, and so our protocols are to save them, so I had a, a, a plastic vial that I labeled, took the samples, but there were so many of them, I just began to pile them up on the ledge. We had two days off after this, and it usually doesn't rain that time of year, but during these two days, it rained the first day, and the sun came out the second day, and when we returned to work on the third day, seeds that had been buried for 3,000 years had germinated. They were all sprouting there on the side, buried for 3,000 years. All they needed was moisture and sunlight. Some of you, there's been seeds sown into your life a long time ago, and all it needs is exposure to the means of grace. That would be the Word of God and the Holy Spirit coming together, and those seeds germinate. You think, well, it's too late. It's too late. No, it's not too late. It's, it's not that it was too long ago. In God's economy, he'll cause those seeds to germinate. Whether he's got to send a bird to poop you out or he's got to have you dug up so that you get the moisture and the sunlight that you need, God gets the final word. Now, what's the big idea? I mean, what do we take away from this today? Parables like this one that we read, the parable of the sower, require a response to Jesus and his mission they communicate urgency, they give us hope, and ultimately they change the world. We're intended to grapple with them, I believe. Jim Elliott was martyred at age 29. He was a missionary, graduate of Wheaton Bible College, went to Ecuador as a missionary, he and his wife, and he was murdered by the people that he went to take the gospel to. And Jim Elliott wrote shortly before his martyrdom, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And that's what I'm asking you to do today. Give up what you cannot keep anyway, and then you'll gain something which you cannot lose. Churchill put it like this. We make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. It's not all about making a living. It's about making a life in the name of Jesus. Now, you've patiently waited to the end because I told you that I would tell you what God spoke to me. So uh, it was very simple, just three words. But if you think about it, two words <laughs> from the cross. In English, three words, it is finished. In Spanish, two words, consumado es. But in Greek, it's just one word, tetelestai, it is finished. So just three words the Lord spoke to me. <clears throat> he said, wake up, Scott. That gives one pause. <laughs> I mean, that can mean a lot of things, right? Um, that can mean get your act together. That can mean like 
let's go. Wake up. Come on, move it. I've got things for you to do. Um, so I've thought a lot about this. What does that mean? And I'm still grappling with that. But one thing I do know for sure from that is that he knows my name. And Scott's not even my first name. See, my first name is David. I'm David Scott. I go by my middle name, Scott. And somehow he was aware of that. (laughs) Because he didn't say, wake up, dude. He didn't say, wake up, David. He didn't say, wake up, strip. He said, wake up, Scott. So whatever else that means, it means to me that he knows where I live and he knows my name. And he knows your name too. You ever notice how Jesus had pet names for his followers? James and John, what did he call them? Sons of thunder. Peter, the rock. Thomas, the twin, what did he call him? Didymus, which means carbon copy, ditto, because he was a twin. He sent little pet names for all of his followers. Mary Magdalene, what did he call her? Migdal in Hebrew means tower. So I mean, Mary Magdal, he's called Mary the tower. So there's the rock and the tower and the sons of thunder. He's got his name for you too. That name of affection. That name of caring. Can we come into agreement with him today? With what he says. And then everything becomes possible for us. So as the team comes to play and the prayer team is here in the front, I want to invite you to make a decision to follow Jesus Christ today. Give up what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. Still in your hands, this 
your promise still stands and great is your faithfulness your faithfulness i'm still in your hands this is my confidence you just thank you for today's service. Thank you for the word that was spoken, Lord. Father God, let it take root in our lives and let it be transformational and let it produce fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. Father God, I ask you to bless your people today. Bless them during the week. And Father, may the joy of the Lord strengthen them this week. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.